0: Hello on this lovely spring day and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Another super busy programme ahead of us today. Did you see the Irish Times last Saturday? Well, on the front page, staring right at you, is a common frog, Rana Temporaria, the common frog. And you can see it beautifully, just its head above the surface. And you can see those two eyes affixed on the top, looking straight out at the lens. It was taken by Nick Bradshaw and it says, Leap of Faith. Mating frogs appear early. Well, in studio, Aina Nilana, Niall Hatch and Terry Flanagan at home in Malahide, Dr Richard Collins. Aina, is it an early mating frog, do you think?
1: Well, Brian Jay, it depends like everything else. I I used to do a survey for years and years and years called the Green Wave where we had people from all around the country sending us in various signs of spring and one of them was frogs. Mm. Leaves on trees different and things like this. And we'd started on the 1st of February and there was always frogs already mating in Cork and Kerry because spring began earlier down there. Whereas it took longer as it went around the coast and eventually the last place where the frogs woke up and were at it was actually in (laughs) Cavan and Monaghan which could have been well into March. So it depends on where you are. So this one was taken in South County Dublin. But you know, we'd have to see when were they there last year. It's it's well into February. It's been a warm winter. Frogs have been seen hopping around and I've been getting people sending me in questions into the Irish Times where they encounter frogs, big fat frogs full of eggs, hopping around houses in the States on dark nights in January, wondering what they're doing. I was saying perhaps they were on the town. But um everything is all up in a heap. We've had such a mild winter, very, very few frosty days and it's temperature that wakes them up. So if the water temperature is warm enough, the frogs will come out, they'll go to their mating ponds where they have mated every year for the last couple of years or whenever and wait for things to happen. So that's what your man is doing, looking out. Whether it's a male or a female, you don't know. Looking at that picture, do you know the difference between a male and a female frog? If you saw one, how would you know which was which? I would
0: imagine it has something to do with their hands, their thumbs.
1: They have horny hands. Yes, indeed, they have pads on, the males have pads on their Thumbs, if you like, for holding on to the female and amplexes. So that's how it. That's how it is. But this frog has their hands completely under the water, so we cannot tell whether it's a male or a female. But it certainly looks up and ready for action it? Anyway, but it was a great it?
0: photograph. It was lovely to see it, I have to say, on Saturday, you know.
1: Ah, yes. It's lovely to have nature pictures in the paper. Yeah,
0: more of it is what I say. Absolutely. Whenever I
2: see a picture of wildlife, be it a bird or a frog or a mammal or whatever, on the front of a newspaper, it catches my eye more so than anything else, more so than any celebrity, let's say, or sporting event. <laughs> Um, I'm all for the wild. I'm sick of looking at
3: celebs. Richard Collins, have you seen this photograph? Yes, I have, Derek, and a fine photograph. It is just the sort of thing we need to publicise wildlife and the need to protect it.
0: And last week we were talking about signs of spring and Terence, Terry Flanagan, is with us now. Terry, you mentioned that the Great Hit is the first sign of spring for you. Well, it is for me, Derek. I don't mm-hmm. know
4: about other people. To me, when I hear that that call, that distinctive call in springtime, generally in the, in the start of February, to me, that's always the, the, the real first sign of spring. I know you'll hear other birds. You'll hear the, the starlings and the sparrows and the robin sings throughout the winter. But then you're out for a walk, and up high in the trees, you hear this very distinctive call of the great tit. And I, as far as I can remember, it was the very, very first call that my father
0: taught me. Be- really? The, be- because it's an easy one. It's so simple. Teacher, teacher, teacher. And you ended up being a teacher, teacher, teacher. I and don't they're think always high up in the trees, aren't they? Well, I've always found them very, very high up. Whereas the,
4: the, the robin, you'll get much, much closer to the ground. And when the sparrows, you'll get them in the hedgerow. But the great tit... I always think of him as being the highest bird in the tree and it always <laughs> amazes birds. me because he's one of the smallest birds. Mm. So, but yes, I always find them high up in the tree. Well, I,
0: I managed to hear my very first one and record my first one last Saturday in Merino in Dublin. Three, I was over there, got out of the car and the first thing I heard was a great hit. I wonder, was it because you had mentioned it to me and then it was on playback on Saturday morning. It was in my mind that I actually heard it. But here it is. But as soon as I get under the tree, you will hear, like always, the bird stops singing. But you can hear it from a distance and then I get closer. You hear a little bit louder and then it just stops. Have a listen. Wood pigeon in there also. Take two, John. Take two. So that's the great hit in Merino, Nile Hatch.
2: I always like to call that the bicycle pump song because that's what it reminds me of um, a squeaky bicycle pump and it is one of the easiest bird songs to, to learn it's something that uh, when I'm doing dawn chorus walks and leading groups around it's one that I always like to focus on because it's one that you can reliably identify it's just one of many different sounds that great tits make they're actually vocally very complex they have a ro- very wide repertoire and we know that they'll sing that teacher teacher song for a while and then they'll switch to a different song I might throw an extra note in or maybe mm-hmm. a really different song we know that the neighboring great tits in neighboring territories they are listening to that and they will then change their tune literally and start singing that other song and this goes in waves across the woodland so it's very complex communications going on there and we also know that when the birds are singing the song even though each bout of teacher, teacher, teacher might sound the same to human ears when you slow them down you look at them on a a spectrogram where you put a visual representation of what the song looks like there's actually loads of variation in there which the great tits presumably can hear and detect even though the human ear can't so there's a lot more going on there than meets the ear than we think absolutely
0: Now we know a lot about great tits thanks to the researchers and scientists at Oxford University who've been studying them at Witham Woods. That's an estate which is managed by the university. And this is one of the longest studies in the world, as I understand it, of any particular bird species. And it's been going for 75 years now or
2: thereabouts? It's it's coming almost 77 now because um, oh it was, my yeah it was it was it was started um the, the very first egg that was monitored as part of that that long running survey was on the 27th of April 1947. And such a common species the great tit. It is and, and and I think you know that, that that's really interesting too because a lot of people would think that a lot of research would be mostly focused by universities on rare species but you can actually tell so much more by studying the really common species of course 75 years ago they couldn't have known that it would still be a common species today luckily it is but what they're finding I think probably the, m- the most telling thing of all about this study is because it's been going for so long they've been able to see really the impact of climate change back in the 1940s was not something that was on anybody's radar uh, the very earliest uh, instances of it may have been happening but it wasn't Identified at the time, but as time has gone on since then, we've seen this really affect these great tits in this study, and it's, it's absolute proof of this. They're now nesting around three weeks earlier than they used to 75 years ago, and that's directly as a result of climate.
0: All great tits, or just the great tits in that woodland? Well, the great tits in that woodland.
2: We know now there are other studies that have been done elsewhere, but not over such a long period of time. There's nobody has studied birds, uh, species like this, in, in such detail as in this study. Uh, but we we are seeing that yes, you know, from other surveys, surveys, we're seeing that great tits and blue tits and all these other birds, especially the ones that rely on caterpillars and other insect larvae to feed on. They are nesting earlier. And the, the thing, of course, is there that they try to time their nestings, the hatching of their eggs for the peak emergence of the food that they're allowing to feed those chicks. And for great tits, it's caterpillars. Uh, so they want to make sure that there's a peak number of caterpillars at the time when their chicks are hatching out. And for that two week period, two and a half week period when they're feeding their chicks, they need to make sure there's an abundance of caterpillars. There's only so far though they can actually adapt and how quickly they can do that and if the climate change continues the way it is and then we get the butterflies and moth caterpillars emerging earlier and earlier it will get to a point presumably where the great tits can no longer cope with this and that could be very serious for them. So amazing we see this from this study that we actually have proof of this over such a long period of time.
3: It's brilliant. Richard, Yes, the great tit is the world's most studied bird, apparently. No other bird has received the same attention from science as the great tit, and it deserves it. The great study, of course, was done by John Krebs in in Oxford, and it, of course, established all kinds of interesting things about great tits. For instance, you mentioned that it's singing now, great tits marry first and then sing whereas most birds get onto the territory and they sing and this attracts the lady in and so forth but in this case the great tit teams up with her in the flocks and then when he has a property only then does he start to sing. Richard that's very interesting that they actually
4: pair off before they do any singing. So I presume the reason why they're singing is to proclaim a territory if they're not going to attract a mate.
3: Yes, that's one of the conclusions Birds were generally thought To both sing To attract uh, to attract a mate And to establish a the territory then, For instance, the sedge warbler Just the opposite He sings merrily on the territory But once he marries, he shuts up He doesn't find marriage very nice, I suppose And he's sorry he married And he stops singing, for instance So that establishes that singing At least is involved In acquiring a territory As evident by him But the great tit marries first and then sings. This separates the two functions conveniently for us. With most birds, we don't know whether the singing is about marrying or property
0: owning. So are you suggesting that the bird I heard singing in Merino the other day had
3: already tied the knot? Yes, I I would assume that he has. Otherwise, you see, they're very conservative... Well, is it, um, I suppose. But things are all up the creek now, the way um, the the climate is going and so forth. And remember, the great tit is a very, very resourceful bird. He can adapt very well to any and exploit any sort of situation. So the, the literature says that. I mean, I haven't verified any of this myself. But looking at the various studies, it seems to establish this, that the great tit is married before he sings. It's only about declaring territory, you could go back to the same place and see if he's still there. And if he is and the cat hasn't got him, well, that will confirm it for you.
0: Well, I might just do that anyway. I'm not too pushed on whether or not it has a mate. I was just delighted to hear the great hit singing, as had been pointed out by our colleague Terry Flanagan last week. Now, I was in the Natural History Museum about a month or so ago. I had some friends with me. And amongst all the specimens they had A giant sturgeon. Now, sturgeon is a fish and caviar is the eggs produced by the female sturgeon. I've never tasted caviar. I'm sure some of you listening have. It's a delicacy, costs an awful lot of money. But I thought to myself, I didn't know we had sturgeon in Irish waters. So I asked Terry, would he pop in and have a look and get the lowdown on this particular fish, which was caught in the River Liffey. Now, as I said, I never knew we had sturgeon in Irish waters, Terry. Yeah, well, I never knew it either.
4: And I don't think we do have any now at the moment. But there are a couple of specimens in the Natural History Museum. And we saw one of them, we being Paolo Viscardi, the keeper and I. He brought me in to show me a specimen that was a 100 years old. And it's a weird looking fish. If anyone's going into the Natural History Museum, you should pay attention to this fish. It's in there on the left hand side. It's quite long. It's actually like an old dinosaur. It's got these scoots or plates on the, on the, on the top of it for protection and it's got this really weird mouth the mouth is not what you'd think it is it's it's got these kind of barbels and it actually feeds by siphoning along the ground so yeah very interesting had a chat with paolo viscardi
5: come along this way uh terry i'll show you our sturgeon the one from the liffey
4: wow i've never seen a sturgeon before it's such an unusual fish isn't it
5: yeah, they are uh, quite weird-looking. This big specimen, this is a large one. This is uh, over six feet long, I think. It's, uh, it's pretty huge.
4: Now, looking at it, the first thing I notice is there's no real dorsal fin on it.
5: No, no, they don't really have a dorsal fin. Um, they've got these scutes that run along the back, these kind of bony, armoured plates that run along the back. That's a very distinctive feature in itself. They're a very old fish, am I right? Yeah, the group's been around for quite a long time. I mean, the sturgeon as we know it originated in the Cretaceous. They've been around for a good long time. So we're talking about these fish
4: not really having changed in shape in the last almost, what, 200 million years?
5: Well, um, yeah, it's more or less, more or less, actually. So it's a very effective shape. In classic classic terms, if it ain't broken, don't try to fix it. Um, And it kind of works for evolution as well. Because they they have very long lifespans, so they can live kind of 50, 60 years individually, they take a long time to breed, it can take them kind of, 15, 20 years just to become sexually mature. So it's, it's actually quite similar to a human lifespan. You're talking about quite a, a, a slow reproductive rate, and that tends to mean slow evolution. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. You've also got a body plan that just works. They feed on kind of invertebrates in the mud. Yeah, yeah, An unusual thing about them, I'm told, is that they don't have teeth. Yeah, so they've got these this kind of this strange like, tube, almost like a. Yeah, sort of, like, get down there and look underneath it. You can see this. It's like a tube underneath the head, rather than yeah. a mouth. That's right, and that, that's basically because they, they um, act like a vacuum cleaner. They go over the uh, the sediment on the bottom of, yeah. uh, kind of estuaries. So th- these they the kind live, of scavengers. They're, they're a strange fish because they, they don't really live in the oceans as such. Some of them go out to ocean, but most of them live in kind of estuaries and they'll, they'll spawn upstream in the freshwater. And Um, this particular one is from the Liffey. This one's from the Liffey, yes. Tell me a little bit about this one, then. So this one came out of the River Liffey. I don't think there are actually that many from the Liffey, and we got this particular specimen in 1890. So you know, it's it's a fairly old specimen. It's been it's been here for a good long while, and as you can see, it's it's large. It's uh, you know, it's a. It's also
4: very black
5: yeah um, now n- never trust the color of museum specimens is my motto, so sometimes they will have been painted, sometimes they will have had soot embedded in the skin because this, this this place used to be gaslit oh, so, yeah, um, yeah. so it wasn't intentional it was, it wasn't intentional no, no, no um, sometimes it's just a case that soot gets into the specimen, and you know it's very hard to get soot out once it's in there, yeah. but in this case, I suspect it was just kind of painted and it's a bit darker than you'd normally see in life because obviously once an animal dies it loses a lot of its natural coloration a lot of that kind of sheen that you see from healthy skin or the kind of mucus that forms on the surface of things like fish quite frequently covers the scales and actually gives them a very different appearance to when they're dead and dried out of course it's also in a museum where we're lit by natural light as much as by Mm gaslight, and so a lot of specimens are faded from that process as well so getting the natural color of things can be very very difficult in a museum environment. Looking at this one here, if I look just at the head of the fish, it's not unlike a catfish because it's got those those whiskers underneath. Yeah, it's got those little barbels um, which effectively are there to sense, just like whiskers on a cat, it's there to sense the environment around it. So it uses those as it's kind of going over the surface sediment um, to feel where there might be things to eat. Because obviously the eyes, they're, they're up on the side so it can see fairly well above it and you can kind of see there's like, almost like a little notch above yeah, yeah. so it can see if there's anything above it. Uh, not that there are many predators of a fish this size and you know, with these bony scoots down its back that's fairly safe from predators but still you need to be a bit cautious in the oceans
4: I've heard them referred to as being like dinosaurs or dinosaur fish
5: I think the fact that they've got these big kind of armour plated scales down their yeah. back actually plays a big part in that
4: they have become very, very rare in Irish waters, and I think throughout the world as well. Why is that?
5: Yeah, I mean, they're one of the rarest fish, in fact, they're probably the rarest, uh, rarest fish group in the world, because basically they just get overexploited. Caviar is, is one of the big issues. Of course, they yeah. produce yeah, That's from yeah. the eggs. And that's all. the eggs, absolutely. And, you know, the eggs are harvested from adults. If it's in the wild, they'll actually kill the adults to take the eggs, which... Not only means that you're not getting that spawning for that year. So they're not like salmon; they don't lay eggs once and then die. They keep on spawning um, over the course of years, not every year, but but regularly.
4: So in ways, they are somewhat highly evolved because, like you mentioned there about the egg laying, but also this ability to be able to move in and out of seawater into freshwater.
5: Having a physiology that can adapt to those changing salinities is actually quite a remarkable thing. And you see it in salmon, you see it in eels, and you see it in sturgeon. But it's a very, very good trait because it means that you can exploit different habitats, different environments, Mm -hmm. and it opens up safer grounds for spawning, for example. So fresh waters tend to be somewhat safer than marine waters. Um, You have smaller predators, you have different sorts of predators, and generally it's a better place for for your small fry, Mm -hmm. your little young grow up in mm-hmm. yeah absolutely like a crash.
4: but wouldn't it be
5: lovely to see this unusual dinosaur type fish swimming up the liffey that'd be fantastic yeah they are incredible looking animals and you know, they've been around for a very very long time it'd be a real shame to see them disappear Thank you very much
0: indeed, Terry Flanagan and Paolo Viscardi. And it's a wonderful specimen. If you ever find yourself in the area, go in and have a look. It's on the left-hand side. You don't even have to go up the stairs. Actually, you can't go upstairs anymore. There's only one floor in there. Richard, you've seen this many times, have you not?
3: Yes, indeed, I have. It's, it's a favourite with the grandchildren. They always think it's an extraordinary-looking fish. And it is a weird-looking character with his barb sticking out of his mouth and all this kind of thing. Obviously, something from the age of the dinosaurs isn't it?: Indeed it is. And to tell us more about sturgeon and whether or not we could see them in
0: Irish waters again someday perhaps and enjoying the caviar, <laughs> who knows, is Dr. Ken Whelan, our fishery scientist. Now, Ken, are you familiar
6: with this specimen in the Natural History Museum? It's a long, long time ago since, I, since I've since i seen it. Yes, I've seen it. And I've seen live uh, sturgeon as well. Quite a number of different species on the continent. So they're really fascinating creatures. As Richard was saying, these, you know, originally, these originated hundreds of millions of years ago. So these are quite prehistoric and they look prehistoric and they are prehistoric. But they're, the small baby sturgeon are to die for the most gorgeous little creatures. They look as if they're not real. They're so pretty. But a lovely fish. You think they're pretty. I think they're one of the ugliest fish I've ever seen. And the fact that people eat their eggs. (laughs) Well, you know the way in cartoons very often a baby of some creature that grows up to be very aggressive looking and highly armoured or whatever can look really appealing. The tiny little sturgeon are gorgeous when they're in the ponds. I've only seen them in in, in Mm. hatcheries. But they're really pretty and they, they kind of wobble along on their, on their pectoral fins, on the front fins. And they're really pretty. They're very nice.
0: Now, what struck me about this one when I was in there a few weeks ago and noticed it first, well, my first time for seeing it, it's been there for several years, obviously, is the fact that it was caught in the River Liffey. Hmm. Now, that blew my mind. I never knew we had sturgeon in our rivers, let alone in Irish waters.
6: Yeah, well, thanks to a friend of mine, Declan Quigley. Uh, Declan did a very thorough job around 2014 in looking at the historical records in terms of sturgeon in Ireland. Because we have known, uh, because of the fact that we obviously have the sturgeon in the museum and they have sturgeon um, that are mounted in Wales and so on as well. We knew they were in our rivers, but we had very little information about where they occurred and where they were caught and so on. So he did a really thorough job at looking at all of the different records that were there. And it would seem as if they were encountered on a fairly regular basis over the years, at least, particularly in the sea, in sea fisheries. But some were indeed uh, also uh, encountered in our rivers. And importantly, we'll talk about this a little later on, the estuaries are really important in terms of the life cycle of the sturgeon. Anna, you're itching to get in there.
1: Yes indeed, sturgeon. So when I knew we were going to be talking about them today I went to my reference books not of course my science reference books but my cookery recipe books. Oh dear. And I have two wonderful cookery books one is La Russe Gastronomique which tells you about all the food of Europe and I have another one actually which is very good it's the North Atlantic Seafood by Alan Davidson. And Alan Davidson has several pages on the sturgeon eating the sturgeon and all the rest of this and he maintains that in fact... It was all over the North Atlantic, the the, um, Irish Sea, came up the estuaries, came up the rivers. And in fact, a huge one came up the Severn in the 1300s and Edward II came decided it was a royal fish and no other diminutive person in his kingdom could eat it. All of the royal sturgeon, all of the sturgeon had to be given to the royal family. And this has been the tradition, I think the last one was in nineteen sixty six, and after that the palace decided they didn't want any more of them indeed. And there's recipes for what they eat and what they taste like. But the the flesh isn't so good really. It was the it was the eggs, it was the female eggs that were the absolute thing that they all looked out for. Why? Well, I mean, do you have to ask? We have. To, I am asking. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the eggs. The eggs are tiny, little, fine eggs, and they're salty. And in a time, or oh, way back in Mesolithic times, when they would catch in these things, this was a whole area of salt, and that they could that they could enjoy. That they the, couldn't keep them. You couldn't preserve them in those times. So it was fresh stuff. Everything had to be dried and kept for the winter. But this was a source of lovely, lovely, tasty food that they absolutely adored. Whereas if you get bigger ones like paddlefish and lumpfish and salmon, they all have eggs too but they're they are bigger eggs and they're stuck together they haven't this fine quality that they have I've had a teaspoon of it once or twice and you can you can certainly see the difference. But what I wanted to ask you Ken was, do they swim in the river differently they're huge fish, they can be two metres long you're looking at something that's six foot, seven foot, swimming near the surface apparently that they could see the fish the old fishermen long ago making their way up the river and they were able to catch them and they were made extinct very early on in, by monks and by people who lived on rivers because they could see the fish swimming up the, the waters. You've seen them, you said. Do they swim near the surface like that?
6: No, the ones I've seen haven't been in the wild but what I can do is I, I, I can uh, certainly I certainly can uh, think about uh, what I've seen on television in terms of some of the bigger sturgeon in Canada, the white sturgeon. And these are such enormous creatures that uh, going up a river system they're going to make a massive great wake And uh, you're going to see the presence of the fish there. And once they reach any sort of shallow area in the river at all, they're going to be very clear. But I think there's a few very interesting facts that come out of what Declan has done for us in his very thorough review. These creatures, as you say, are enormous. And the number of eggs they can lay, absolutely phenomenal. Anything from sort of 50,000 to millions of eggs. The eggs then stick to the bottom. So you need a relatively small number of fish. I'm only guessing. But you would probably need a relatively small number of fish um, for a modest population of these monsters to appear from time to time in the river. So it's not as if you had hordes of these creatures going upstream. I think what you had was probably small subpopulations of them that were in individual rivers. And that would make them very susceptible to overfishing. They're very long-lived. The European sturgeon can live up to 60 years of age. As you say, they're, they're, they're very big creatures, but because of the nature of their um, uh, anadromous uh, um, lifestyle, where they come in out of the sea, lay their eggs in fresh water, the babies go back down to the estuaries and then go back out into the ocean, they're going, they leave themselves very susceptible, I think, to being exploited when they're coming in. Have they got a life cycle similar to salmon? No, it's, it's, it's very different, Derek. They're, they're long-lived and they're very slow to mature. Just from memory, I think the females, I think they can be 18 to 20 years of age before they first lay eggs. Okay. Um, and uh, as I say, uh, when they do lay the eggs, then the, the juveniles um, seem to make their way then back downstream towards the estuaries relatively quickly over their first year. But they seem to hang around for quite a long time in the estuaries, which is actually... Uh, Quite important from our point of view because we are obliged under certain agreements, uh, conservation agreements, now to review whether or not we can actually try and reintroduce the sturgeon into Ireland. So that's uh, we we haven't got an obligation to do this, but we are asked to at least look at it. And there was a fantastic piece of uh, research done by a lady called Melissa Vander Hayden, who was working with uh, Joanna O'Brien in what was GWIT which is now the um, Atlantic University in Galway. And she did a very thorough job looking very objectively about what would be required to try and let these monsters come back in. And then, of course, you have the next phase and she makes this very clear at the end of her wonderful review. The next phase would be what would the impact be are we really in a position where we can host these creatures again? Because nature absolutely abhors a vacuum and they haven't been with us for so long. Our rivers have changed, but it's a very interesting debate, I think.
1: But presumably when they catch the sturgeon and take the eggs from them for caviar, that means the female is killed at that point, is it?
6: Um, I think in the wild they're certainly killed, I think, when when, when they take them out. But obviously in the context of reproducing the sturgeon, they have to keep the females alive the second generation but they may very well kill them if they want to use the meat mm. No so but what I, I wanted what to I mean. ask
1: you about that was when we have our salmon coming and I know you said they're not salmon but the female salmon come into our rivers they, they, they actually spawn and then they die oh, yeah. but I mean if the if the sturgeon can live to be 60, 70, 80 years of age and they start spawning at 20 patently they leave all the eggs behind in the river and then to go back to sea and do they come in again or you know I mean oh, something they can do it more a than, more than yeah, once yeah, obviously. I see what you yeah, mean
6: yeah. Yeah, No 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 they certainly do because they sp- and funny enough uh, maybe because it takes so much out of them but they only spawn I believe only every three or four years so that means that in their lifestyle let's say they start spawning at 20 just to make the maths easier and they die at 60 so that leaves us 40 years so maybe 10, 10 cycles of eggs but yes they would be spawning uh, spawners again and again in fresh water.
1: Yeah, but they spawn the eggs. The female spawns the eggs. There they are, the eggs. So then presumably males need to be nearby to put their sperm, their milk on top of that. So when this female goes up the river like a a cargo ship. Is she attended by amorous males or are they equally large or is it the female, the cow as they call it in my cookery book? (laughs) Is the cow the biggest of the fish more than the males?
6: Well very often in these situations it is the female that's bigger because uh, in reality the male needs to be producing very large quantities of milk which he can do with a smaller body and it also makes a lot more sense to have a good distribution genetically of males, particularly if you have a small population of fish. So what I envisaged in the past was a small number of these massive great creatures say going up the shore Uh, they would be attended as you said by some of the males Uh, they would uh, lay the eggs and then head on back out to sea again and as I say the little juveniles then would feed away in fresh water and after a small period of time then they would head down towards the estuary and live there.
3: Richard. Yes, the royal fish that you mentioned there, there. There was a tradition that the first sturgeon caught had to be sent to the monarch. Now, in 1966, there was an interesting incident of Bannon and Skellig. Sorry. A trawler there caught a sturgeon and brought it into Dingle. Now, they kept it alive in the boat very wisely, but uh, it was proposed to send it to Eamon de Valera, who was president, the equivalent of the monarch here at the time. Now, Dev said no, no, not to send it to him, to give it to the poor Clare nuns in Kenmare. But then, uh, unfortunately, a crowd gathered around the boat, and the fellow looking after the sturgeon was listening to people shouting at him, and he thought they wanted him to release the fish because they felt it was cruel to keep it. So he threw the sturgeon overboard, and it swam away. It would be a lovely specimen in the museum if it were still here, but the curious fact, and I know what Ken thinks of this, was that on the same day, according to the carryman, another trawler caught a second sturgeon. And this sturgeon was sent to Billingsgate, was sold to Billingsgate Fish Market, a place you and I visited, Derek, I remember going there with you and recording something some years ago. Now, it was sent there and I believe it ended up in Buckingham Palace as uh, expected. But the other thing that you've been raising is the, the cartilaginous past. Now, the cartilaginous fish have electrical sensors along the sides of their bodies. So they can detect electric fields. They can detect the electricity from the muscles of other creatures, other fish. Now, I believe that sturgeon have retained this. But I think, can might clarify this, that the bony fish no longer retain that to any great extent. Is that actually true? No, it's not, actually, because um, at one stage,
6: uh, the late Eamon de Butler and myself, we were planning on doing a film on Pike and a huge big relative of Pike called Muskelung. And one of the things that we were going to actually feature in the film was the fact that even in the darkest of opaque water, Pike can actually sense they can actually uh, judge exactly where their prey are. So they share that with the cartilaginous fish, this amazing ability to have these small sensors all over the nose of the pike and down the lateral line and down at the base of the gills as well. So they still have retained that ability to be able to use these sensors. So in reality, what they're able to do is they're able to uh, sense the shape of the prey and then they're able to judge the distance and they're able to attack the prey. There's been some amazing experiments done in Germany with pike where they have actually blindfolded the pike and they were still able to feed quite well. But it's interesting that it would, in parallel with the sharks, that this would have been retained by these, by, by these predators in freshwater.
3: It seems a rather odd thing uh, to be wanting to reintroduce these now because this is an fish. This is a fish that lives in the sea and lives in the water and can deal with the salinity difference of moving from freshwater to seawater and back. Now, two fish that are in big trouble who are of that character are, of course, the salmon and the eel, and they have both declined terribly in the last while. Is it the fact that they have this property, is that a factor in their decline? And why would we try to bring back another one at this critical time? Is that feasible? Well, I think you've really,
6: really put your thumb on on the nub of the problem now. I think we have to be very careful here. I think it's important maybe to think that a sturgeon is certainly not just for Christmas. So if you're going to bring in back creatures that are, you know, up to maybe three metres long into an environment that's completely different to the environment that they originally lived in, where you have lots and lots of different new species of fish, where, as you say, quite rightly, where you have other species that are that, that are under pressure, you have to think about it very carefully. But what we find, I think, uh, all of us in our biological careers is that, With the reintroduction of umbrella species, because of the nature of the demands they have in terms of the environment they need and in terms of the challenges they face, a lot of other creatures actually come along uh, with that protection and improve as a result of that protection. But I don't think anybody is rushing out at the moment to try and reintroduce sturgeon. I think we're obliged to look at the feasibility of doing it. And I think we should be very careful in terms of the way we actually address that and see exactly what would be uh, what would be involved, but given the recent redesignation of Atlantic salmon, I think we'll be really hard put to try and bring back the populations of our Atlantic salmon over the next uh, four or five decades without the added challenges of trying to introduce another migratory species that very much parallels the sort of biology of salmon.
1: No, I, I think, I don't know whether it is talk about reintroducing it. It's part of the habitats directive that we all signed up to in Maastricht that each country would do studies of animals that were there once and had become extinct. So we did a survey about the feasibility of restoring the golden eagle, restoring the osprey, restoring the white-tailed sea eagle. This was all seen to be something that would happen and lo in the fullness of time it did. We did a survey on whether it would be feasible or not to restore the wolf Mm -hmm. and what conditions would be necessary in Ireland were we to do this. This was the report and It's the same with the sturgeon. Sturgeon were a species around our waters for though for though. It was a native species here once. And so under the Habitats Directive, these reports are required. So this report like the wolf one was done to see what the feasibility was. It doesn't mean that they are thinking of bringing them back.
0: No, 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 no. but look, we're only only talking out loud, no. no, 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 which we're allowed to
1: do. (laughs) Well, I understand that, but just in case people think, oh, they're thinking of bringing this back and we can't even mind our salmon, now they're going to be doing this. For the avoidance of doubt, as it's says in all kinds of contracts that you get nowadays. For the avoidance of those, this is part of the requirement under the Habitats Directive that we do studies in each of the European countries about the feasibility of restoring species, what were there once and are now extinct. And that's what this is all about in the first instance.
0: In the first instance. OK, now, Ken, you mentioned there
6: the redesignation yeah. of salmon. Yeah. So explain. Well, I never thought I would see this during my career. But um, we're in a situation now where there's a group called the IUCN, which is the International... Union for the Conservation of Nature. And they're responsible for actually designating all sorts of different species as to whether they're okay, are they endangered, are they disappearing or whatever. And the salmon, the Atlantic salmon, was of least concern. But yet in their report just last December, they saw fit to designate the Atlantic salmon in the UK as endangered and anywhere else in its range as near-threatened from a situation where it was designated as of least concern. So that certainly indicates very clearly um, the pressures and the stresses that are now on our Atlantic salmon populations. And we really do have to take this very seriously. What's gone wrong? Well, so many things have gone wrong, really, in the sense that um, we, in a more general sense, were responsible for the decline because we've altered our seas. And there's a huge issue in terms of the salmon survival, at sea, But that apart, in terms of the man-made issues that they're facing into, they're numerous. Again, no more than the problems that we were talking about with the sturgeon, certainly co- connectivity and barriers. That's one big problem. Loss of habitat, where lots and lots of the rivers have in Ireland have been drained, where we've had problems with pollution, where we've had all sorts of different problems in terms of lack of shading and so on. We also have a situation where they're now competing with a lot of other invasive species. So there's a whole range and plethora of different problems that they're uh, they're facing into. And uh, in reality, we need to try and look at this in a logical way and see how best we can tackle the problems and tackle the most serious problems first. So through the Atlantic Salmon Trust that I do some work for, we came up some years ago with the idea of a likely suspects framework. And the idea was to try and look at all of these different challenges, all of the pressures, and to try and prioritise then the pressures that we need to tackle first. And that work is now ongoing and we have a lot of really, really good results beginning to come out of that, indicating very clearly the areas we can tackle, the timelines that are involved and how we might be able to tackle those problems. And can you, do you think? Yes, I think so. You know, um, I'm I'm tempted by the Sturgeon. The reason I'm tempted by the Sturgeon is you have to win people's hearts and minds. And sometimes a great big programme is much more enticing for people than where you're, you know, niggling around the edges. So, an umbrella species that would actually get people focused on our freshwater system mightn't be any harder. So, you think the sturgeon
0: point. could be good for the salmon?
6: I do, yeah. I think, in the sense that if we can get a debate going, I'm not necessarily saying we're going to rush out and reintroduce them, but I think a good debate would get people focused around this fish and get us focused around how we can all get involved in trying to improve the salmon's habitat. And even the smallest streams in County Wicklow. We now have uh, groups of volunteers, community groups, now taking care of these small little archeries. And if we can spread that out, we certainly can help. Okay. well, you you mentioned the sturgeon as an umbrella fish. Yeah. So how
0: does it give cover for the salmon? If we brought back the sturgeon, how does it make it better for the salmon?
6: Well, it's not so much that it makes it directly better for the salmon itself but what it does is the features that the sturgeon need in order to be successful would be very, very good for all our native fish species. We'd have to improve our barrier systems. We'd have to have a riverbed that was perfect for them to spawn in. The juveniles would have to have the conditions that they need not just in the rivers but in the estuaries and increasingly and I'm becoming very concerned about our estuaries. We're running some courses at the moment in County Louth and we've had a great opportunity over the last two years to look at the estuaries of our bigger rivers. And we have problems in our estuaries. I think we've a lot of attention being focused on our rivers. But I think, again, something like this might get the debate going. And I think you have to be uh, very brave in terms of the steps you need to take if a species is now facing into a situation where it's now near threatened and is likely to be threatened in a very short space of time. And that's the salmon. And yeah. that is the salmon.
3: Richard? Salmon, it seems to me, are tougher customers than we thought. They are lot. They have a few strings to their bow. Apparently, some actually breed in the rivers and don't go to sea at all. Others have become landlocked and are breeding in lakes and things like that and the thesis that they are moving that the huge distances they must travel when they get into the sea is responsible for the problem still they are surviving in the rivers of portugal and they're surviving in the rivers of france so we have a long way to go before this animal is really in trouble or what do you think ken
6: You're right in the sense that maybe I should have made it clear that what we're talking about are individual populations here. It's really important to understand the way salmon work. Ten, twelve thousand 12,000 years ago, when they came into our rivers, and indeed the rivers in Spain and Portugal and France at the same time, when they came in after the ice, they actually adapted to individual rivers. So populations are different. So, for example, the population in the Liffey would be quite different genetically to the population of fish that would be in the Blackwater and Cork. So you have individual populations that appear to be doing better than other individual populations, and that's part of the likely suspects framework, is to look and see why that is the case. But in terms of what's happening in, uh, certainly on the borders with Portugal and Spain, there's a huge effort going on at the moment to do exactly what we've been describing, in terms of habitat improvements and so on, to try and make sure that the remnant population of fish in those small isolated systems, that they are maintained. And certainly, there is no doubt about it, as I say, it varies from river to river. But in general, the overall situation in terms of the populations that are coming under pressure is not a pretty sight at the moment.
0: Ken, just before you go, here's
6: your coat, watch your hurry. (laughs) But I know you're doing a project on mayfly. Oh yes, uh, I'm stepping back five decades now. So because originally, I think when you and I met for the first time, Derek, I was actually just finishing up a project on Mayfly, the big Mayfly, the one that anglers love, called Ephemera danica.
1: Five decades ago, Derek's not that old. Come
6: on, <laughs> no, he in. said he's finishing I, up. I, I five decades. Finis- I was finishing up. I was finishing up. Uh, this was a great opportunity because uh, Law Pro, which is the Waters and Communities Group a lot of anglers were getting very concerned that the mayfly uh, populations on the big western lakes weren't as prolific as they used to be. And yet, Loch Sheeland, where I did a lot of my original work, and at that stage, because of pig slurry and because of man-made problems, we were finding it hard to find individual nymphs, never mind finding populations. It's now booming in terms of mayflies. So basically, what we're trying to do is we're roping in the local communities so they can act as citizen scientists. So in the future, they can actually monitor these creatures and see exactly what's happening. So my job with two colleagues is basically to set this up and to see how we can advise people in terms of Um, monitoring these mayflies how they can look for them where they can find them what features in the lakes might be changing that they can monitor temperature for example water clarity so we're going to try and kit them out and see can we get them actually surveying these creatures over the next 10 years or so Now give a shout out to your two colleagues Um, I have Martin McGarrigal Martin used to work with the EPA so what Martin is doing he's basically looking at how lakes have changed over the last 40 or 50 years in terms of temperature profiles and so on and then I have a young bride Biologist called Ross Finley, who is an excellent diver as well as being a first-class biologist. So we're going to cut go down with the mayflies for the very first time. We're going to go into the water where um, we've never been before, into deeper water than any survey has been before, and see exactly where they live and where. Than conditions uh, in a natural situation where conditions are unsuitable. And what you can do to improve the conditions? Well, certainly going s- forward. Certainly, that's that's really important. And try and understand why is it that we've had this miraculous recovery in Loch Shielan? I was out sampling only a couple of weeks ago. And I was using what's called a Neckman Grab, which is a little machine that goes down just as a set of jaws. I put the little jaws into the bottom, into an area I used to sample in the 1970s. And I got 16 mayfly nymphs in one small area of the bed of the lake. And everywhere we went, there was plenty of mayflies. That's a situation that you can contrast then with Loch Cara, which has had dreadful problems in recent years over in the West. And we found it very hard to get some nymphs in Loch Cara, we eventually did. But Loch Cara is a disgrace at the moment in terms of the way it has been let go downhill in relation to water quality. But great news. There is a big life programme now on Loch Cara and there's a huge amount of work going on to bring it back. And it'll be great because the um, volunteers will be able to monitor, hopefully, the recovery of the mayfly in Loch Cara and see a similar situation in 10 or 12 years' time as we're seeing now in Loch We really need these armies of local community interest groups not Just anglers, you know, anglers are great, but we need people that are hill walkers, people that like their wildlife, people that just enjoy walking, that they would adopt their little stream or their little river. And the difference that would make would be enormous to all of our wildlife.
0: Well, you're a great spokesperson for not just the fish, but the rivers and the lakes of Ireland. So, Ken, thank you very much indeed. And we'll follow that story with great interest. Now, Michelle Brown, our researcher, has popped in and has her laptop with her.
7: Hi, you, Derek. How now, are you? what have you
0: got with you there, Michelle?
7: I've, uh, I'm showing you in a picture of the grumpy snowdrops that I saw last week in Carlo.
0: The grumpy snowdrops, explain,
5: please.
7: Well, if you have a look at them, they um, there are little green markings on them and they look like a, a grumpy man. Honest to
5: God.
1: I mean, probably just because we see two dots, we see their eyes, and then we anthropomorphize Snowdrops have lovely white petals, outside ones, inside ones, and then there are various species of snowdrops with different green markings mm. on the inside petals. Mm. And this particular one happens to have two dots and a thing like a moustache, and so it looks like a face, and therefore it's grumpy. Yeah, well,
5: did
0: you not see what what when Bishop Brennan's image appeared on the skirting board in the parochial house on Crangy Island?
1: Andrew, doesn't the piece of Jesus appear on sliced pans when you toast them in the right way? There you go. Anyway, but anyway, no, it, is a, it is a lovely a lovely. They're beautiful. It's, it's a, a lovely, lovely photograph. Tell yeah. us
0: more, Michelle. We'll put it on the website. Go on, yeah.
7: Yeah, so we're turning our attention to the star of the spring now, the snowdrop. Uh, the little hardy flower is, is such a hit down in the um, Carlo Garden Trail every year that they extended their snowdrop festivities from a week to a month. And I went and I met with Robert Miller, who's a, a horticulturist, and he runs the garden centre down in Altamont Estate.
0: To look at some grumpy snowdrops.
7: To look at some grumpy snowdrops.
0: Fantastic.
7: I'm just walking past and I see you admiring the snowdrops. Did you come on purpose for the snowdrops? Yes, we've come, especially for the snowdrops, we come every year. Where and are you coming been from? Turles County. The three of us have been coming here for at least 17 years. And do you want to say your names? Mary, Anne and Catherine. Are you related? <laughs> no, no, just no. friends. Gardening gardening friends, friends for a long, long time. <laughs> yes. yeah. And what's your fascination with snowdrops? I don't know, I suppose they're brave little flowers. They come, they're the first yeah, they're to the flower
1: in the year. Yeah. They're hardy and mm-hmm. they're don't mind the frost or the snow or the wind or the rain
7: you know they still keep flowering and still keep growing. Yeah. Mm. And what's so special about the snowdrops here in Altamont Gardens? Well there's a wonderful selection even in the main garden itself and then what Robert has for sale as well is is very tempting. And all different kinds of varieties? Yes 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 covering the five months yes. yes. Yeah. And And what would your favourite be? Well, it's I suppose some of the ones with the green markings maybe are my
1: favourite and some of the uh, yellow ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think for me it's a Tipperary snowdrop, Hill Poe from outside okay. Nina County Tipperary. All right,
7: listen, thank you very much. Oh, thank you.
8: Yeah. Well, how, how you are you doing? Good. It's all over there now.
7: God almighty, it is beautiful yeah.
8: here. Do a ramble around the gardens now as well. So time. this is in the wall garden. This is a gorgeous snowdrop here called S. Arnott. It's just a fabulous doer, just flowers, flowers, flowers forever. It has this gorgeous honey scent, particularly when you bring it into the warmth of the house. S. Arnott. Like you see the big massive petals on that one there called gravity. Yeah. Do you know? Yep. And then we have wasp. hmm Yeah, little uh, skinny petals. So yeah, a lot of them have the kind of descriptive names and then others might be named after the person who discovered them. Or This one is lovely one called Jubilee Green. So you can see it has much more green foliage than some of the more silvery foliage ones.
7: And tell me, how come there's um, a tradition of
8: snowdrops here? Mrs. North was the former owner of Altamont, and she's the lady who left the gardens to the state uh, back in 1999 when she passed away. Yeah, so she had quite a collection before. She passed away, she might have had 30 to 50 varieties, and they would have been increased over, over the years to where we are today, probably a couple of hundred varieties. So you would
7: have known Mrs. North, so would you?
8: I knew Mrs. North briefly. She basically had asked us to reinstate these herbaceous borders here in the walled garden that she had remembered from her youth.
7: Are they uh, native to Ireland?
8: No, snowdrops wouldn't have been native. It's not strictly known how they arrived, but more than likely would have been brought to Ireland by the monks. Navalis would have been probably the first variety of snowdrop that arrived in, uh, in Ireland, and that would be like a thousand years ago. So it's the one when people think of a snowdrop, it's Galantis nivalis. But then there's, there's about 20 odd different species of snowdrops. And as those species were brought into garden situation, they started to cross. And that's how we've ended up with so many cultivars that we have today. Well, what we'll do is maybe go for a little ramble and I can show you it underneath the trees. So they're the ones that kind of grow naturally in woodlands and so on. Navalis itself is quite a petite little snowdrop, but really at the same time very tough and is able to seem to come through any type of weather.
7: I can't get over how beautiful is it is.
8: Yeah, well now look, there's a, like there's a long ramble that will bring you... All the way around the lake, and then there's even a longer ramble that will bring you down to the River Slaney and up the 100 steps. And okay, yeah, so that's Make fabulous a map down there. And have a look, yeah. yeah, there's maps here.
7: Mm.
8: So, as you can see now underneath the beech trees, these are the novalises. Wow, so it's just lovely and the naturalized well. That's Glantis, is milk flower. So nivalis is, is the species of snowdrop. Um, so novalis is more maybe um Western Europe, then you'd have placatus which would be more central Europe and then you'd have the eyes, which would be more kind of turkey and that area
7: and what do you think it is why people like them so much
8: i think really it is because they are the first signs of spring and i think it, it's a sign of hope really and and better and longer days to to come
7: how come in this county it seems to be a particular thing
8: uh, well carlo's very lucky it's, it's very fertile ground Uh, probably some of the best agricultural land in the country so we have lots of big gardens and a lot of these snowdrops would have been spread throughout the the big house big gardens and swapped and so on so that's where the the initial collections would have been started and they've got a bit of a foothold and then over years uh, with with new gardeners the, the collections have been increased. Where they like to grow, and the valleys is a woodland plant, so they, they tend to do best underneath, as we said, deciduous trees. Uh, definitely don't like to be grown underneath any evergreens, it's too dry for them. Um, then some of the other varieties, as I said, Elwesias, which would commonly be from, as I said, warmer areas like Turkey, they will grow out in a more open space. So, free draining, sunny, they seem to be quite happy.
7: But in the wild, where would people be likely to see them now?
8: They're not native, so they don't necessarily grow in the wild. It is more in old churchyards and places like that, but they haven't really got a grip in Ireland as a naturalised plant like you would associate maybe bluebells. It really is in big gardens open to the public like Altamont and so on that you will probably get to see the, the best bred of them. They're more of a garden plant than a wild plant.
7: Are they expensive?
8: They, they are expensive, I suppose, like all collector items, you, you can pay as much as you want. The most expensive uh, snowdrop to date is over £1,800, which was paid for a snowdrop called Golden Tears this time last year. It's a Joe Sharman snowdrop, but yeah, they can regularly make in excess of, uh, of £1,000. Joe Sharman would be probably one of the biggest breeders of uh, snowdrops in the world. It's a white snowdrop, but it has outer yellow markings on the outer petals. Normally, there would be green, but this one has yellow. So how it got the name Golden Tear.
7: What would your average snowdrop here cost? The
8: average snowdrop, I suppose, can range between 10 and 30 euros. It can change because you know when they initially come out there's a few varieties, maybe Treasure Island, there's Green Tier, they would be all in excess of a hundred euro each.
7: And what would be the most popular here?
8: People in general are attracted to the bigger robust ones and even this one here in front of us called Helen Toblinson, the lovely silver foliage and then obviously the lovely white drop, large drop on above it. It's just such a fabulous snowdrop, you just look at it and it's it's pristine. And it's flowering away even though we had a heavy frost last night it's cracking away there and once we get a little bit more heat up in the day you'll you'll see the bees fluttering around there and uh, doing their business you know
0: More details, as always, on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Ana, Niall, Richard, Terry and Ken Whelan, our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating, and our researcher, Michelle Brown. Until next week, bye!